The subject of faith and reason and their relationship with each other is not one uh, that is uncommon in theological discussions or discussions between people of faith and uh, people maybe in the academy or people who uh, tend to think that they only operate by bare uh, human logic and people who would, who would say that they, they don't really operate in terms of faith but they just operate in terms of reason. It's an age-old conflict, an age-old uh, conversation. Uh, what is the relationship between faith and reason? Uh, a famous philosopher once said that by nature all men or all mankind desire to know. What do little children say when they're very small? What is the most asked question of little children to their parents? Parents? Why? Exactly. Clean up your room. Why? Go to bed. Why? <laughs> That's more about disobedience, I think, than really rational inquiry. But kids are always asking the questions, why? Why do things work this way? Uh, sometimes we don't, get the, we don't get the why right. We ask questions why and we study and we try to understand things. And in today's world, we're so fixated on the question why that we even rush to judgment as to explain why before we even have the evidence. We saw that just this week in the news. A hospital was bombed in Gaza. And all the news organizations, for the most part, reacted without the proper evidence and blamed it on Israel and the IDF forces. And when the evidence came out, they had to backpedal because they discovered that the, actually the evidence suggests and supports the idea that people in Gaza fired the rocket not or fired the bomb, not people outside of Gaza. And so even in our quest to understand why we get ahead of ourselves and we try to explain why we try to give reason for things without even having all the evidence. But is faith at odds with reason? Is reason at odds with faith? We're going to discover answers to questions kind of like this. What does a Christian do when it's hard to make sense of life? I believe today's passage and what the Lord is going to show us today will help answer that question for you. I think that's probably the most important question for believers in the room today. What does a Christian do when it's hard to make sense of life? Because sometimes things happen in your life, in my life, that we can't make sense out of it. We can't logically come to grips and understand with what's going on. Even though we would like for life to be that way. When we struggle to wrap our finite little minds around profound truths, when we struggle to do that, what do we do in that struggle? What is the relationship between faith and reason? Does following Christ mean that a person must abandon logic and reason in order to embrace a blind faith? Or a blind leap of faith, if you will. These are the types of questions our text from Mark chapter 9 today addresses as we open up God's holy and wise word. So in your Bibles, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. The Bible says, And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, 
The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Let's pray. Father, would you, by your grace and mercy, cause your word to bear fruit this morning in our lives. Teach us, mold us, conform us into your image. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few things I just want you to notice just right off the bat from this text before we dive into it. Notice some words that are used here in verse 30 through 32. Verse 30 says, Jesus went out with his disciples. Listen to this. He was unwilling for anyone to know. Now most scholars would take this verse and say that what that means is, what Mark means is, is that Jesus and his disciples were going, going from the mountain of transfiguration to Capernaum in such a way as to avoid large cities and large crowds. He didn't want people, everyday average people, the crowds that were chasing him, to know where he was going. And I think that's true. But I think also we, we can't dismiss the possibility that also what Mark is talking about in the context of this passage is that possibly Jesus didn't want people, including his disciples, to know exactly how things were going to play out. He was in a sense, in some ways, hiding the truth from the crowds, but also hiding it, veiling it in a way from his disciples. Because they couldn't handle the message. The gospel in the New Testament is described mostly by Paul as a mystery. The mystery of the gospel. Have you ever found God's word a bit mysterious? I have. I've struggled at times to wrap my, my, my little pea brain mind around these great truths in God's word. So we have that word, which really we get the word agnostic from this word, not knowing about it. It's that word, agne, agneo. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's where we get the word agnostic. An agnostic is not like a theist. A theist is someone who believes in God. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God or believes that there's no God. An agnostic believes that even if there was a God, we couldn't know him. We couldn't know him personally. We couldn't be able to offer any kind of evidence that God exists. That's what an agnostic is. And there are many people who used to claim to be Christians, who used to walk and talk like a Christian, but now they they don't claim to be a Christian anymore. Now they're an agnostic. They have, in a sense, disconnected from the faith. They would say, "Mm, there could be a God, but I can't ever know for sure. So that word, not knowing about it, is used in verse 30. Again, we see in verse 31, he tells them, This message in verse 32, what does it say? They did not, what? Understand. You know, the Old Testament is full of language telling God's people, seek understanding. That's what Proverbs and Psalms are just riddled with this language. Seek understanding. Seek wisdom. Wisdom cries out in the streets. 
the writer of Proverbs says. In Ecclesiastes, she lifts up her voice. Listen to wisdom. Gain understanding. The Christian faith does not stiff arm reason or logic or understanding. No, God wants you to understand who He is. He wants you to have faith and reason. We see it again in the passage that we looked at last week. What was happening in the story last week. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John from the Mount of Transfiguration. They go into this place where his disciples were and he encounters a man who has a son who's demon-possessed, right? Disciples can't deliver the demon, but we see this language that's used throughout that passage. Jesus reiterates over and over this concept of believing, 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 believing. The Gospel of Mark is commonly divided into five major literary sections. Part 3, which begins in Mark 8.27 and ends in Mark 10.52, represents a strategic moment in Jesus' ministry where he focuses on discipleship. That is, Jesus' words and actions show his devotion to a particular group of people and their spiritual development. He's honing in on this group of disciples. He's preparing them for what is to come and he does not mince words in the process. He gets right to the point. He's very frank with them. Especially in this part of Mark's gospel. From chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10. Jesus cuts through the fat. So much so that his warnings and sayings provoke rebuke. From the greatest and the most devoted of the apostles, Peter, as we saw in chapter 8, verse 50, or, uh, 32. Things are getting intense between Jesus and his disciples because the time of his crucifixion is drawing near. It's getting closer and closer and closer. Jesus, therefore, begins to focus his time and energy on a small group of men commonly referred to simply as the twelve. The twelve. In today's text, we find Jesus telling them the same hard truths for a second time. He's going to do it three times. He's going to repeat these hard sayings three times. We've already seen it once, and now he's doing it again for the second time. Repetition is the name of the game in discipleship. Fundamentals, 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 going back to the gospel over and over and over again. And this is what Jesus is doing. The first time Jesus spoke in this way was in Mark Chapter 8, verse 31. Just before Peter rebuked him. If you remember that from a couple weeks ago. On that occasion, Jesus stressed the necessity of his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. But on this occasion, in chapter 9, he stresses the certainty of it. Do you see it there? Look at it there in verse 31. He will be handed over. Not he must. This is not a hypothetical that's going to happen. It's getting closer and closer. And he says, I will be handed over. I will be killed. I will be raised. But listen, that is not the only difference between the first time he issued this warning and the second. Here, he stresses the fact that he will be betrayed. He didn't say that the first time. He said he would be rejected by the people 
that it might seem to make sense that would reject him. The people who've rejected him up to that point. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, right? They were always coming to Jesus asking questions, trying to trap him, right? But now Jesus discloses that he's going to be betrayed. Somebody close to him. See, the closer that these 12 men walked with Jesus, the more attention he gave to them, the more apparent it became to them that they had some serious issues within. Jesus wasn't just going to be rejected by those from without. He was going to be betrayed by someone within. Earlier in chapter 9, Peter, James, and John were reminded by Jesus that they still struggled to understand the written word of God. You remember that? He asked Jesus a bunch of questions about Elijah. And he's like, well, the word talks about Elijah. But you haven't been listening to the word up to this point. So why would you listen to the word, prophetic word from Malachi about Elijah? He challenges them on that. They've already heard that correction from Jesus. And the other disciples... While Peter and James and John were coming back from the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, the other disciples had just failed to exercise a demon-possessed boy. And now, at this point, all of them are told that one among them will turn Jesus over. That someone in the twelve will betray Jesus. Betrayal only originates with friends. Enemies don't betray. People who aren't associated with you don't betray you. It's friends that betray you. And these 12 were Jesus' friends. They traveled together. They ministered together. They ate meals together. They served one another and other people together. If these twelve had ever doubted themselves as devoted followers of Christ, if they ever doubted themselves before, they definitely did now. In fact, even though Jesus was paying closer attention to them at this point in his ministry, and they were spending more uninterrupted time with him than before, they may have begun to feel more distance from him in this moment than ever. Isn't that ironic? That the closer they were to Jesus, the more apparent their own sinful nature became to them. So the first truth that we can take away from this passage this morning is that as our faith grows as Christians, as Christ followers, our vision, our understanding, our grasp improves. Our grasp on reality improves. You think, well, that sounds really good, but it's a two-edged sword. That is, the most, or the more that we follow Jesus, the more we will recognize the weaknesses in ourselves. We'll recognize the weaknesses that we have to understand things clearly, to articulate things clearly, our weaknesses to exercise faith appropriately when the right time comes. These are distinct weaknesses that Christians have 
Ironically, however, as our vision improves in this way, we can become even more disillusioned about ourselves, disappointed with ourselves, disappointed with what we might feel the future holds. As we grow and mature as believers, which is something that we do in discipleship. That's one of our goals in discipleship, isn't it? That we grow, that we mature as believers. But the more that this happens, we can become disillusioned with ourselves and even with the church community around us and that we're a part of. Imagine, imagine being one of the twelve and hearing Jesus say, That one of your close brothers is a devil. That's how John talks about what Jesus says in John chapter 6. He says, Jesus says, one of you is a devil. How would you feel? Now if Jesus were talking to the world, if he had this massive audience of tens of thousands or millions of people and he says one of you is a devil we probably wouldn't have a problem with that we'd be like well yeah probably so right I mean the odds are that yeah somebody here is a betrayer of Jesus but he's not talking to thousands of people he's talking to a small church he's talking to 12 how would you feel if Jesus said this to your small group Would you want to pack it up and go home? Would you lose the faith? If Jesus spoke this truth to you? How many people are there in America today who once self-identified as Christians, as members of Christ's church, but are now nowhere to be found among the saints because of disillusionment? Because they've just simply given up. Researchers today are calling these people the Duns. The Duns. D-O-N-E-S. People who have been there and done that and they're done with church. An entire generation of people who are done. Why? Most of them say it's because they have been hurt. They've become disappointed and disillusioned with the church. Because they discovered, they discovered sinful people. I don't say imperfect people because we're all imperfect. But we're all sinners too. These people have been hurt by their closest friends whom they trusted in the best years of their life. And they are done They're done trying. They're not visiting churches anymore. And churches are trying to reach them and trying to put on this facade of no, we're better than everybody else. You're not going to have, you won't face disillusionment here. There will be no disappointments with our church. We're great. Some of the Duns today have become disillusioned not only with the church but with themselves. They've simply given up on Jesus and his bride, the church, because the burden of their sin weighs so heavy upon their conscience that they think there's not enough grace available for them. There's not enough to go around. A common sentiment articulated by music artist DC Talk back in the late 90s. What if I stumble? 
What if I fall? What if I fail? What if I lose my step? What if I make fools of everybody? Will the love from the church continue when my walk becomes a crawl? It's a great question. A question that Christians are asking. What if you were Peter, knowing that the Lord had called you Satan and told you to get behind him just moments later, just moments earlier? Do you remember that part of the story from chapter 8? Jesus says for the very first time, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. Peter takes him aside and says, hold up Jesus. <laughs> That's not part of the plan. Jesus says, get behind me Satan. You have man's concerns at heart, not God's. You're thinking of things the way that man does, the world. Peter had just been called Satan. Taken aside and chastised by Jesus. How are you feeling at this moment when Jesus says again, not that he's going to be rejected by people from the outside, but that someone in this small group is going to betray him. What must have gone through Peter's mind? We don't have access to that. But I know what would be going through my mind. Could it be me? Is he, is he talking about me? He already called me Satan. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get my act together? I may ask, would this group be better off without me? Do I need to leave? Do I need to abandon the twelve? Would it be better if there were 11 and not 12? What's going on with Peter here? Peter is growing in understanding. He's, under, he's coming to know the grace of God. He's coming to the end of himself. He's learning who he is. He's doubting himself. Probably. And that's okay. He's gaining knowledge about himself and Jesus He's not simply walking on faith and ignoring all of the things that are sending off alarms in his head. He's gaining knowledge about himself and Jesus. He gets a closer look at himself in the light of the Savior, but he doesn't leave. And he doesn't give up. The knowledge that he gains through this experience does not lead him to despair. He stays the course of faith. He keeps moving forward. So, as our faith grows, our understanding improves. Our understanding improves in who we are at our core, the community that we belong to. The church is a community of broken sinners saved by the grace of God. Our understanding grows in the grace of God and what He's done for us. But faith doesn't repel understanding it welcomes it and it learns from it as God shows us the truth. Secondly, we discover that doubt is part of discipleship. Doubt is part of discipleship. So, do it in community. Do it in community. There are times where Jesus takes certain members of the twelve aside. He takes Peter, James, and John aside to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. But most of the time when they're going from place to place, they are all together. They are living the Christian life in community. And they're allowed to work out their faith. Right? 
to struggle with things as they go along. We saw in Mark chapter, in chapter 9 verse 24 this statement by that man last week that we looked at whose son was demon possessed and Jesus was like, you know, why are you coming to me? He's like, he's like, I, he's like you know, your disciples couldn't deliver the demon or my son from the demon. Jesus talks about believing. The man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. What is he saying there? He's saying, I, I'm bringing him to you. But I don't have the understanding. I don't have what it takes. You have it. Though this man was not one of the disciples, he articulated something that the disciples exemplified when they went to Capernaum together, not understanding everything Jesus was saying. Verse 32 says, They did not understand this statement. They didn't understand. They all followed Jesus together into the next region of ministry. They were united in faith, but they were diverse in understanding. Though they each had doubts about their own abilities, and they were all confused about Jesus' sayings, they followed Him and they trusted Him together. As one unit. As once said many years ago, a British pastor visited the United States He was a Baptist. He came to the United States. This was in the 1800s. And he went back to England. And he said, the Baptists in America are just a great mass of ignorant people. All pulling one direction. Supporting missionaries around the globe. And, and he was criticizing them. And another British Baptist pastor said to him, why have we not such a great mass? And the truth was that they were divided. They were divided over many things. They couldn't come together and support missionaries together because they were so divided. When the disciples went to Capernaum, you know how many there were? Twelve. There were twelve of them. All pulling in the same direction. They each had their own doubts, their own inabilities. They were all confused about what Jesus was saying. But they all went to Capernaum together as a community. They could be honest with each other about their inability to fully understand Jesus at the time. Yet they pressed on together in unity. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, talks about doubt. It's a great book if you've never read it. In his book, The Reason for God, he says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts which would only be discarded after long reflection. Which should only be discarded after long reflection. He says also, believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. 
He goes on further to say, it is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. He says, and I agree with him, it's okay to doubt. We should be a community of believers who allows doubt, struggle in your faith. Even though the disciples here are confronted with hard truths about their sin and weakness, hard sayings about the future that awaits them and their Lord, these men continue to follow and trust Jesus. They continue to follow and trust Jesus even in their lack of understanding at times, even in their doubts along the way. They didn't give up and they didn't separate. They plowed on together in faith while seeking understanding. And brothers and sisters, we must do the same. We must do the same. Don't jump ship because you struggle to understand the truths of Scripture. Don't jump ship because you struggle to understand how you're going to get through difficult times in your life. You're part of a community of faith and people who help one another follow Jesus in faith. Ask questions. Struggle with one another. We have to do this as a church. The relationship of faith and reason for the church is not one where we stiff arm reason and logic and understanding and wisdom and just keep our head down and blindly do things, do religious things that don't make any sense. Was it unreasonable for the, for the disciples to follow Jesus when they couldn't understand all that he was saying? Was that an unreasonable move for them to say, let's keep going? No. It wasn't unreasonable. Were they taking a blind leap by following Jesus into Capernaum? No. It was a reasonable step of faith. John chapter 6 verse 68. Jesus confronts his disciples Jesus is preaching a hard message to a crowd of people and he gives some really hard sayings. And the Bible says that the people, they head for the hills. <laughs> They're like, okay, this guy's nuts. Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and says, don't you want to go too? Don't you want to leave? Oh man, Peter says something so indicative of what's going on in this, in this same account by Mark. Peter says, where would we go? Who would we turn to? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, following and trusting Jesus is not about having all the answers. 
It's just not. You're not going to ever have all the answers that you want this side of heaven. By nature, all mankind desires to know. But guess what? God is God and you're not. And neither am I. And neither is the church. It is never reasonable to stop following Jesus. It never makes sense to stop following Jesus. Even though you encounter many people who are like, yeah, I used to believe that stuff. I, I used to follow Jesus. I, I used to be like one of you, but I wised up. I, I started living according to reason and logic and, and, and whatever. By the way, you do know that in John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus, the Christ, is referred to as the Logos. What do you think John is saying there? In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And everything that has come into being, everything that you see, everything in the created universe, none of it came into being apart from the Logos. And scholars for centuries have tried to understand what did he, exactly did he mean? Why was he using the word Logos? Because Logos in the Greek world could mean the plan, the, the, the blueprint. That would make sense if you consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. When he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That would make sense. But for anyone to say, I reject the Logos for the logic is completely nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. No one reasonably abandons Jesus for reason. It's unreasonable to do so. It never makes sense. This is why Peter says, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now even though Paul, Peter's saying, even though I don't understand everything, even though here, at this time in my life, I'm afraid to ask. Because, maybe because of what happened earlier. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask. I don't understand everything. Even though this is the case, even though I'm scared and afraid and uncertain about tomorrow, faith doesn't say that facts don't matter. Faith agrees that facts matter, but it also understands that fallen, broken, sinful human beings don't possess the divine perspective necessary to fully understand all the facts. We don't have access to fully understand all the facts. Someday, our knowledge will be made perfect when we stand before Jesus. But until then, the gospel is a mystery. It is something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is foolishness to the Greeks and to the Jews it's a scandal. The message of the cross, he says, is foolishness to those who are dying, to those who are perishing. But to us, to those who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God and it is the power of God. Amen? Oh, and then the very... I'm going to get into Tommy's message a little bit just by mentioning verse 33. Tommy's going to be preaching the word next Sunday. Verse 33 through 35. But I just want to say, in verse 33, we learn what happens to the disciples. Even in the midst of their fear, 
Even in the midst of their misunderstanding, they don't understand what's going on. What happens next? They came to Capernaum. Oh, what beautiful words. <laughs> what beautiful words. Twelve men, though defeated, afraid, confounded, confused, trusted Jesus to follow him to the next stop. Sadly, brothers and sisters, there are so many who never make it to Capernaum. Beleaguered by unbelief, beset with sin, crippled by fear, they forsake Jesus and his church somewhere along life's way. Don't let it be you. Don't ever let it be you. Trust him. Keep following him. Keep grappling with your own inabilities and resting in his grace. You may not ever have all of your questions answered. It will never be answered to your satisfaction in this life. You may not ever have the kind of mastery over sin, brothers and sisters, that you so dearly desire in this life. But don't ever stop trusting and following Jesus together. He alone has the words of eternal life. He alone does. You must keep following Him. You must stick with Him. Have faith. Keep the faith. When you don't have the understanding that you desire. Don't kiss your brains goodbye. Keep struggling in the faith to understand those things. Pray that God would open up your eyes. That you would have understanding that you might be able to defend the faith. To people who ask you questions, well, I don't understand this. Do your very best to have conversations with them. But know that we will not have perfect understanding this side of heaven. Keep the faith when you don't have the understanding that you desire. I'll close with this short story. Many of you are familiar with our story. 2000, 2008. Our family welcomed into the world a precious gift. Her name is Sarah. She's going to be celebrating a birthday here soon. And two days after Emily delivered little Sarah, she wasn't really little, she was our heaviest. But uh, she's a big baby. But two days after that, Emily had an aneurysm. And uh, rushed to the hospital, hours and hours of exploratory surgery. Anyway, it was a long, difficult battle for her in the hospital. By God's grace, she's here, alive, doing well. Still has some health issues that she struggles with. But along the way, as she was in the ICU, it just so happened that the hospital that she was in was literally on the same block in East Dallas as my Bible college. Where I was attending at the time. And many students would come and minister to me. Come and pray with me. They would take up an offering in the student chapel service. Worship service. And, br and bring it to our family on several occasions. Just sweet people. But on one occasion, one of my professors, my Greek professor, a New Testament professor. came to the hospital. And there were a lot of people offering their support. And you know when people struggle, they just don't know what to say. And they just don't know what to do. 
I was that type of person. I, I really struggled at, at funerals and in hospitals to, I was the fixer guy, right? Any other fixers in the, in the room? You like to fix things. You want to say the right things, make people feel better. And there were a lot of people who, who just were very uncomfortable. And this dear brother in the Lord came, older man, and he prayed with me. Huh. Try to say this without losing it. He prayed something that I will never forget and that has meant so much to me, not just as a Christian, but as a Christian thinker, as a teacher, as someone trying to understand how faith and reason work. Because in situations like that, people are asking the questions, God, this is a a young woman with five young children. Her husband... And his family are serving a small rural church in East Texas. And, you know, they're scraping by financially and he's trying to get through school. This is, like, we're trying to make sense of this. You know? How does this make sense in, in, in your plan, in your economy? And trying to wrap our minds around it. And this dear brother prayed with me and he said, Dear Lord, when we can't understand your wisdom, let us trust your love. And just a light went off in my head. Wow. That, that is actually giving voice to this pain and struggle that I'm having right now to articulate how do I worship God in this? How do I understand this? Do I just bury my head in the sand and ignore the difficulty, the struggle, the making sense of it, the unreasonableness that this seems to be occurring to us? No, I, I, can, I can trust in God that God loves me, that God loves her, that he loves our family, that he loves our church. I can move forward. I can go into Capernaum with all of my questions and doubts and struggles because he's faithful. Amen.